Hi everyone and welcome to the Poema Podcast. I'm uh, your host, James Prescott. It's really great to be with you all today. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Kent Dobson to the podcast today. Um, Kent is um, uh, he's an author, he's uh, been a pastor, um, he does a lot of work um, helping people on their spiritual journeys and he's just released his first book which is called Being Bitten by, which is called Bitten by a Camel, which is a brilliant name for a book, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And, um, yeah, so welcome, Kent. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Appreciate appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, so, bit, so bitten by a camel, that's, um, that's a metaphor, and it's actually something that actually happened, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I never thought about it as a metaphor or as a symbol for a long time. No, it's actually something that happened. I climbed Mount Sinai hoping for some sort of divine encounter. Um, and I was at a weird spot in my life. And what happened to me was a whole bunch of misfortunes, I suppose, including uh, being bitten by a camel at the top. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the kind of the spiritual journey that you were on that led you to to go up Mount Sinai, because that's a pretty awesome thing yeah. to do, you know. And, uh... <laughs> well, um, I had been working for a few years at a mega church, and as the worship uh, director or pastor, mm-hmm. and um, but my uh, so much of my Christianity was uh, n- not making sense, and I was kind of a little unsure about the church. Um, and I started getting really curious about what is the Bible, who was Jesus, historical background, you know, biblical languages, mm-hmm. basically like religious studies. And so I moved to Israel to go to graduate school. And I was married and had one kid at the time. And um, as it, as in part like a half academic, half existential quest, or maybe there's no way to distinguish the two for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what it felt like. So I, I was living there at the time when I, near the end of my graduate studies, when I decided, no, I really want to... I want God to <laughs> tell me what to do, and uh, is this thing for real? And maybe if I just, maybe if I climbed the holiest mountain and asked in the most genuine sense, "Hey, what should I do with my life? What, what, you know, what is this thing? Um, are you for real? That, you know, there'd be some kind of encounter, contact, whisper, hint, something like that." Wow. So. Yeah. So what kind of. <clears throat> What questions were you asking? You know, I mean, what, what, yeah. how, what it kind of point it got to in terms of the journey? Well, yeah, that's a that's a good question. What questions was I asking? I mean, um, I suppose on one level, I had been asking, "Who are you, Jesus?" Particularly, like, who is the real Jesus? Um, and so much as you as you as you may know, once you dive into this stuff, you kind of realize. Mm. Um, wait a minute, nobody seems to know who this mysterious Jewish guy really is. Mm. Um, And so that was one question. I was also asking a question about God's will. I don't know what your background was like, but mine was like, no, God has a will and a plan. Mm. And, you know, it's got good things in store for you, but it's kind of tricky to figure out. And so that was something I was asking. Do really, there's really uh, a being up in the sky that has like a, 
a master calendar and we're trying to figure it out. So those were some of the questions I was asking. And, and I was just starting to ask um, maybe who am I beneath the religious Kent, if that makes sense. Mm. The yeah. spiritual guy, you know, that's raised a Christian and this kind of stuff is... Is this for real? I don't know. Those were some of the things that were running through my head. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah. I mean, my yeah, my background is very similar. Um, mm. You know, brought up in church and told that you know God has a plan for your life and you know God's got good things for you and certainty and all that kind of thing. Um, right. And I went through a few circumstances, which kind of uh, brought me to a point where I. Uh, where it wasn't enough anymore, where I had all these questions. Yeah. And, yeah, I had a kind of, I've been on a journey of my own. Um, that's why some of what I've heard from what you've been, well, when I've been listening to you talk about the book, um, it resonated so much with my own my own mm-hmm. journey because um, I've been asking all these questions as well. And yeah. um, some of the answers aren't always comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think for me, what, what I started realizing only very slowly is that the places that were not working, including doubt, including disillusionment, including um, feeling like this or that didn't work for me, beliefs that I couldn't even I couldn't even manufacture the will to believe certain tenets anymore. What I didn't realize is that these were little uh, doorways to a deeper kind of faith. Uh, in, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is when things stopped working for me, that that was really the beginning of a kind of faith, trust, spiritual journey. Um, so in other words, when things didn't work out, and, and, and I say this in the book, but I meet people all the time who feel like spiritual failures. And my feeling is, yeah, that's uh, your right on track <laughs> that yeah. seems to be the way this thing unfolds yeah yeah that's definitely my experience i've, be, I've become I've, I've joined a few um online communities where with people who are in a similar place to me and all of us are basically the same it's kind of like when you lose in a sense when you lose everything and when you know then suddenly it's like oh well, that's where it all begins you know and you can start yeah. asking the right questions and you can you know, you kind of free a little bit from the things that have held you back, or free from. I mean, I've moved out of the kind of Christian bubble now. Um, mm. When I was in it for my whole life, for about 20, 25 years, and once now, now I'm out of it. It's like looking in on it; it looks very, it looks very strange. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Um, now, um, there's this metaphor that you use in the book, um, the loyal soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a bit about that and what that means. And um... Yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, before I had a name for it, I just would have called it maybe fear. Um, fear is a component of it. And what was I afraid of? As I got kind of to the edge of my Christian bubble... Um, the acceptable way of being, um, 
And by the way, inside the Christian bubble, depending on what your bubble is like, certain kind of questions are okay and other ones are not okay. (laughs) But as I started getting to the not okay questions, um, there was an inner voice that really was unconscious. Sometimes it was conscious. Most of the time it was unconscious. That was saying things like, don't go any further. You're going to ruin your life. And... It's, I guess it's a voice of, of that, that we learned in childhood that keeps us safe. And for me, um, it actually worked. And that's how, that's once I had a word for it, the loyal soldier, which I learned from uh, other people like Richard Rohr and Bill Plotkin, who I cite in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a term now that used by uh, psychotherapists, well, some, I should say, um, but it's a voice that we learned in childhood that kept us acceptable and safe. And so inside the Christian world, what did that look like? That looked like having the correct beliefs. Um, it can look like wearing the right clothes, uh, sleeping with the right kind of person, getting married at the right time, obeying the rules. The list goes on and on. It just depends on whatever kept you safe. Um, it could be uh, uh being a people pleaser, it could even manifest itself as kind of being a rebel. Whatever kept you psychologically safe as a young person becomes over time this loyal soldier. And the loyal soldier doesn't give up his post. He continues to preach, in a sense, here's the safe and acceptable way of being in the world. In other words, he's really keeping us at a certain point. He or she is keeping us from growing up. Um And once you start to recognize that, um, you realize just how much of your everyday choices is about pleasing this kind of loyal voice in your head. So for me, let me give you a concrete example. When I was a megachurch pastor, um, I would be sitting in rooms full of people, important people, um, leaders who had certain uh, ideas about the way things should go and the way things should be. And what was very hard for me to detect, if I'm honest, is that a lot of time in the room I was asking, who do I need to please to be safe enough? Mm. Not totally safe, but safe enough. Like, how can I please so-and-so and so-and-so and say this thing and that thing just to keep me safe enough inside this um, social construct, um, which uh, the, the important thing is not to beat yourself up about it. Everybody has these loyal voices as they grow up. The question is, if we want to go further on the journey, how do we learn to recognize them, thank them for their like loyal help along the way, but in a sense say, I don't need this anymore. Um, I don't need to be sitting in a room with other adults And I'm also an adult saying, who do I need to please? Mm -hmm. I need to get close to the truth, come what may. And I need to speak the truth, come what may. Um, And and in in that sense, you begin to dismiss the loyal soldier, although they don't, he or she doesn't go away. It's something that you just, uh, I think, begin to become conscious of um, Mm -hmm. and begin to take steps out of. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that voice Mm -hmm. sounds familiar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it, let me say one more thing about it. Yeah. Um, it, it in terms of faith community, 
if you're inside a faith community and you're told, here are the acceptable beliefs um, and acceptable practices, Mm -hmm. and if you don't abide by them, God is going to torture you, throw you into hell, burn Mm -hmm. you, um, you'll be excommunicated. Then you have like these double voices. You have the loyal soldier in your own head and you have the community, on the other hand, speaking similar kinds of things. And to step out of that, I'm telling you, is takes profound courage and humility at the same time. And it's scary stuff. And I see why people just would rather sit in church and cross their arms. Or I know pastors who really don't believe this stuff, really, really do not, you know, uh, believe that all people are, you know, um, God's children and there's not this hierarchy and, um, you know, LGBT inclusion down in their souls. They know, no, uh, what I think of God and spirituality, I include these people, but they're in an environment where they can't say that, or they think they can't. Those are the voices of the loyal soldier. And I know what it's like cause I've been there. Um, mm. and it, and it's, it's, I understand why people just back away and placate. Yeah. And say, well, you know, it could be, you know, and it's, it's it becomes a kind of people pleasing. Who do I need to please to stay safe? And again, I shame no one for this because I did it. I still do it. Other people do it. But over time, we do not grow up psycho spiritually if all we do is listen to the loyal soldier. That's so true. It sounds like a lot of my experience, to be honest. Mm. You know, it's such a. It's, it's a very difficult, it is a very courageous thing to do to step out of that in a church mm-hmm. context. Because um, even more so when it's, when you get a lot of, nowadays you get a lot of passive aggressive kind of stuff happening in leadership in churches. So they don't say overtly that if you don't believe what we believe you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. But they kind of, it's subtly implied, you know. Yeah. It's, never, it's never overtly <laughs> stated, but it's kind of implied that you know, you do things this way or you don't do them at all, you know, or you're, you know, or you're in trouble, you know. Yeah. Which um, in a way yeah. is even worse because at least, at least when people say it, you know where they stand, you know. Um, yep. But, um, but yeah. I agree with that. I agree. Passive aggressive is probably the right word for it. Yeah. Um, which it, I think it's important to start to get curious about what's being said beneath what's being said, especially if you're in leadership um, or you're a part of a church with with uh, leaders and or views that you're aren't really in alignment with. Just mm. start getting curious about what's being said beneath what's being said. Like a friend of mine says, um, and he might be being a little crass here, but he says, follow the money first. So if people are saying things and. Like, let's let's just take inclusion for a minute. Um, and they're mm-hmm. saying, well, yeah. let's just, um, can't we be all things to all people? Let's not take a stand on this or that issue. And you start exploring why a lot of it, in a very base, crass way, comes down to the bottom line. Yeah. And they know it's going to take a hit. And mm. when you say it like that, it just mm-hmm. sounds kind of absurd. Really? You're, you're mm-hmm. concerned. We're concerned about dollar figures yeah that means you're concerned about the institution and you're bowing down before the institution and that's just a small example of what happens in dozens of other areas too you know Mm. so yeah Yeah. when you're concerned with when you're more concerned with bums on seats you know 
um, and appealing to more people rather than and being more general rather than taking a stand on something, then yeah. there's, a, there's a problem. Definitely. Yeah, and, and follow Jesus on that. I mean, he's the one that runs away from crowds. At one time, a crowd gathers. At, this is after one of the feeding stories, and Jesus says, you're just coming back because you're hungry. You know, I mean, he's sort of upset by the very notion of mm. of bums and seats or, you know, crowds on hillsides. And um, he seems to be disturbed by that. But the evangelical church, particularly in America, I don't know about in England um, or in Europe, but um, that's largely been the kind of a golden calf that we've been bowing down before. We know we're doing something right if lots of people show up. And Jesus is an example of that <laughs> not being the case. He seems to be something's wrong if lots of people are just showing up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It resonates so much with me. Um, yeah. Now, one thing I've heard you talk about when you're talking about the book is um, is coming up against the idea that that like we, the human race, are the problem. You know, um, and I totally agree with you on this. But can you unpack that idea a little bit? You know, this kind of sure, sure. Yeah, it's kind of a sensitive issue, and I think if I had to, um, well, maybe I'll put this in my next book. I guess the question I'm asking behind that is, what does it mean to be a human being? And just as a natural animal born into the world with a, a soul, a spirit, a body, a a conscience, intuitions, uh, feelings, imagination. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, and one of the things I, I wanted to push against that stopped working for me in terms of faith was the notion of original sin. At least original sin is how it was preached to me. So uh, I grew up believing that the moment you came into the world, anyone came into the world, that they were a problem to God. Mm. Like, and what do I mean? I mean, just the fact that they were mere humans, quote, sinful humans, means they started off as a problem. And they're such a problem. It's not just like a mild thing, like, you know, you're kind of naughty in school. No. If you follow the thread, what that means is not only are you a problem, but God is going to have to punish you for this. How is he going to have to punish you for this? He's going to have to throw you into hell. And how long does that last? Oh, billions and billions and billions of years. So you die at 18 years old, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a motorcycle wreck because you're trying to be like James Dean and you're not, quote, right with God. Well, what's God going to have to do to you? Torture you for billions of years just by the fact that you were born, quote, originally sinful. That just stopped working for me. I just said, no way. Mm. No way can this be true. And actually, it turns out there's lots inside the Christian tradition itself that argues against it. I mean, the whole Eastern half of Christianity never accepted original sin in the first place. So it's not like it's a given. Um, so I think this notion that you are born a problem, I think we have to say, no, we are born originally good. There's some seed or divine DNA that every human being has, regardless of race or zip code or gender or gender identity or whatever, that is extremely precious. That's more of the view of God that that maybe I came I'm coming to learn more slowly that there is a precious seed of 
beauty and goodness. You could call it original goodness if you want. Um, <laughs> that. that everybody has. And they can't get out of it. <laughs> That's like even the worst of the worst, you know, uh, can't get out of it. Now, I'm saying all that, and I also have a small caveat that I don't, I don't think I say too much about in the book. Maybe I hint to it that human beings also have the capacity for evil, mm-hmm. I, I, and I mean that in like uh, in the Jungian sense that no, there is a shadow to the human side. Yes, originally good but also originally messy, we might say. And I don't, I'm not naive. Um, when I lived in Israel, I saw, um, heard, felt um, suicide bombings. And there, there's a darkness. Um, there's a capacity for darkness that we all, I think, also possess, which means we're originally complex, might be uh uh, a more authentic way of saying it. But one of the things I'm trying to do, to do in the book is is um, help people. I hope it's helpful just with this notion that just by the fact that I was born into the world, God views me as a problem. I say no. God, God whatever we mean by God, you are a precious, um, beautiful, um, uh, creative uh, seed that's been planted on this earth. Um, mm. So anyway, that's that's kind of the notion I'm, um, I'm trying to dig around in, I guess. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, about um, yeah, substitutionary atonement theory, and I don't believe in that. Um, you know, God that resolves everything by violence. You know? Yeah. And and that kind of plays into that the same idea that, that you know, that... that the, the, the substitutionary atonement theory plays into the idea that there's something by default that's wrong with us, and that it needs, and that only violence yep. can solve that problem. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. And actually, that's how I got there. It just in my own thinking, I, the the atonement theory didn't make sense to me. Like in the way you're describing it. Like, wait a minute, God has to brutally torture another human being just to accept other human beings. That doesn't make any sense. Or if you want to put it like in a kind of weird theological terms, God has to torture himself uh, and cause suffering and death so that he can look at and accept other human beings. That didn't compute, and and as you probably know, um, substitutionary atonement theory is not uh, became something important largely to evangelicals, but was never a part of the rich Christian heritage mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. particularly the mystical dimensions of Christianity. Mm-hmm. There was not really such a thing. Um, but you're right. It's like, okay, you're a problem, and here's the magic formula that God is like cooked yeah. up yeah. that is violent. Um, and all you have to do is believe it, and then you get a little magic sprinkling on you, and then God, you know, can accept you. That just doesn't make any sense. No. Um, it, that that is does so much harm, I think, to people's souls. Um, yes. I agree. When that's the mess, largely the message they've received. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it can ruin intimacy with God as well. You know, like if you're standing away. I remember when I was growing up, teenager and early twenties. I was, I, I was, God was always really distant, this big distant being who was just 
waiting to get angry with me you know yeah any opportunity he has you know and, um that does a lot of psychological damage to your view of god as well De- you know. definitely it takes a while to because you have to retrain your brain to see god differently um yeah. so yeah interesting which is which is maybe why so many people are just leaving the church altogether it's it's not like they're necessarily saying um I'm an atheist, although they, some might say that. Um, but they, their image of God has to totally collapse and die for something new to be born. Because you're right. How can you feel a connection? Or you use the word intimacy. I mean, look at the mystics. They talk about a kind of deep physical, spiritual, psychological intimacy with God, why would you even want something like that Mm -hmm. if his main business is to torture people who don't think the right things in their heads about him? You know, that's just like absurd. Um, And I think that's why so many people are just like, no, I'm not playing this game. I'm going to wander off and maybe something uh, will begin to grow in its place as this old archaic mean man in the clouds uh begins to uh dissolve yeah that's right it's like yeah. an, it's like you know you wouldn't stay with an abusive partner you know it's like they'll be nice to you and love you if you if you do what they want but then when you don't do what they want they'll be violent and aggressive and nasty you know <laughs> yeah, that's that's nobody wants nobody would, would want to be in a relationship like that so yeah um, <laughs> no kidding uh, so, so um uh what does it what does it mean f- for you to be sitting in the unknowing it's a, mm. something i heard you say somewhere sitting in the unknowing i just thought it was uh really interesting well um I don't know what it means exactly, but it feels like at times um, a letting go. So unknowing or um, a number of years ago, I read I read a book. Maybe you're familiar with it. The Cloud of Unknowing by this unknown author. Yeah. Um, which is a, such a brilliant, awesome thing that yes. one of the most influential mystical books has the author refuses to name himself, which is just awesome. Yeah. Um, awesome. yeah. But anyway, he, he's, in, he's encouraging nuns in the, in the book. That's the premise of the book. Um, I think they're nuns to enter into the cloud of forgetfulness. He calls the first step. So, What's that mean? That means, in a sense, forgetting what we've been um, told about God. Mm. Forgetting maybe even the good and the bad. Um, just forget it. Forget it. And, and begin, to, begin to say, well, what is my experience? What is my experience of myself? Who am I? What do I think? A lot of people don't even know what they think. What do I feel? Um, what do I feel to be the case in my own body? And maybe start to edge closer to what is my actual experience of God? Do I actually have one or not? Um, what would I, how would I describe my moments of um, transcendence? Um, that's what I would call a divine encounter, a moment of transcendence. Or have I not had one? Um, that's like getting very, very honest. And that's why I say it kind of feels like 
a releasing like um so to be in the unknowing is to say oh man i right now i do not want to cling i am not clinging to any image or idea of god i'm letting them go i'm forgetting them um which in a kind of strange way brings you into contact with yourself um and maybe that sounds kind of new agey, but I don't mean it like that. But just like, who am I? What is my experience? Um, and if, if we're to trust the mystics on that, that becomes uh, another doorway through which we begin to pass. Um, and this strange unknowing of God starts to feel like some spiritual or divine intimacy, but in a way that's maybe unexpected. So what might that feel like to me if I could be personal? Um, I don't know if any moment, any ordinary moment in the real world, particularly it happens in nature for me, where I feel at home. um, I would call that a, a a divine connection. I could call it a divine connection, but I don't need it to be. I don't need to construct a whole theology around it. That's kind of what it feels like to sit in the unknowing. Well, what does this mean about the nature of God? Well, I can, I can, I can sit in the realm of not needing a whole bunch of language around it for a while. Um, to sink into the experience of it rather than to quickly try to name it and put a doctrine statement around it or whatever. I don't know. So you're asking me actually things that are really hard to describe. So um, I tried to describe some in the book, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's hard to describe. Yeah, I guess those experiences can be, can't they? Mm -hmm. I've had those experiences too. I often, you know, um, go and sit out in a park or, or something. I'll go for a walk and just notice things and just pause and... Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's an experience you can't really put into words, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, when I talked about sitting in the unknowing, I I think it's for me it's about there's there's there's, there's an element of it, of being on a spiritual journey and not knowing where it's going. Mm, definitely. And <laughs> having your hands open, you know, to learn from other people to hear everyone's stories and to to let go of where you are now and go somewhere else you know that's right yeah I, and in fact i was thinking about a rilke poem or a line from a rilke poem he says summer summer was like your house you knew where each thing stood that's what he says summer was like your house you knew where each thing stood um which for me has become a kind of metaphor um by the way, the next line is, now uh, you must move, what does he say? Um, move out into your heart as onto a vast plain. And there the immense loneliness begins, which is kind of a surprising line. But he says, okay, there was a time where su- your house, like summer was like your house. You knew where each thing stood. That's what faith felt like for me for a while. I know how this thing works. I know the right beliefs. I even know how to make a career out of this. I know who to please. I know the right words to say. I know how to make a six-figure salary at a mega church. I know how it works. 
but it's almost like there's a knock on the door. Like you, your, your house is finally, it's finally been built. And, and all of a sudden you, you, you sit down in your, your comfortable chair and you're like, man, I understand my house. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and it's time to leave. And I don't know, some stranger says, let's go. And you really do not know what's next. That was my, my experience, particularly of leaving church world. But I knew how the thing worked. But yeah, you're, you're right. I'm just connecting with, and what does sitting in the unknowing look like? Really, really, really not knowing what's next. Moving out into your heart as onto a vast plain. And there the immense loneliness begins and having the guts to say, yeah, I don't know. And, but I can't stay in this house anymore. It's become a prison. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's kind of been my experience and it's the experience of a lot of people that I know. And, you know, the good thing is that when you get out into that valley that there's, you do find there's other people out there as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few yeah. other wanderers. Yeah, yeah out that's there. Right. Yeah, um, I heard you say um, recently that big events in life take time to work on you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for me, that that kind of connected with me because I, you know, I went through a big a big trauma about twenty years ago in my family uh, over about ten years, and it's only literally twenty years now that I've only begun to realize how that impacted me and begun to get resolution and forgiveness and all of that from what happened and understand what it meant um Mm. so what is that i mean that phrase the big events taking time to work on you what does that what does that look like for you um what's been your experience with that well um in part the uh being bitten by a camel and also some of my experiences in Jerusalem, which kind of I would call it a dismantling of my faith and my ideas, um, it it's like um, there was a difference between intellectual falling apart and everything from the head down. Um, and that's kind of what I mean by events take time. To work on you. Like, I could say, I don't know what I think anymore about God. Yeah, but what does that mean on the body level? Um, what does that mean on the in the heart or in the soul? Or um, and for me, in a quite in a very literal sense, the actual story of being bitten, it took me several years before I even started talking about it. I mean, I mean the actual story. Wow. Because because it felt like um There was no triumph. There was no victory. There was no answer. There was no way to quickly turn around into a sermon or even a book. Um, I was bitten by a camel 10 years ago, and I finally got around to trying to find something to say about it because, here's the point, because it had to work on me. Like, and that's just how I think big events happen. You go through a divorce, you get fired from your job. If you quickly resurrect and are like, now I'm in the next relationship, or I got fired, but the next week I got a call and I'm at a better company. Well, whatever um, that failure needed, had the capacity to 
whatever the capacity that failure had to work on you didn't have enough time to do it. And um, and what do I mean by work? I mean working on the ego. Who who do I think I am in the world? Well, the ego puts up every fight in its arsenal uh, to defend itself from being poked and prodded and pulled apart and dismantled. And so that's why big events, even like a divorce, it takes years, years for it to work on you. What really happened? What really happened to me? Who was I? Who am I becoming? Um, where does it hurt? Why does it hurt? Um, a death a death in the family, a sudden death, or even like my dad died very slowly of ALS, mm-hmm. um, and he died a couple years ago. But like the whole drama and trauma of a very slow terminal disease, you just can't turn that around and say, and now this is what it means for my life. No, it's like it works on you. What is my view of the world? What is my view of the world? What did this really teach me? What did this open me up to? Um, and it kind of comes in surprising ways. For me, I needed a little help. You know, I have a spiritual director. I've been to therapy. I've done wilderness-based programs, um, psycho-spiritual programs, um, but also just ordinary life, you know, ordinary life, raising kids, going to work, trying to make a living. It just takes time. And mm. I know I kind of felt, I kind of feel, suddenly feel like, like a, like a coach, <laughs> like, but maybe I am trying to say, yeah, if big things have happened to you, if you got kicked out of your church or kicked out of your family, um, and you haven't immediately risen up to some, you know, yeah, that's because it just takes time. Uh, um, what's his name? Um, Meister Eckhart says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. And he said that as a paleontologist, how painfully slow does a fossil form, you know? So anyway, yeah, those are, that's just been my, a little bit of my experience. And I, I think it, I think it is true. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's yeah, phenomenal. Hmm. Wow. Um, it's interesting you mentioned a spiritual director as well, because I've, I've been seeing a spiritual director for the last year or so, and that's been a, that's been a big thing for me. Um, who's actually a trained, they're actually a trained therapist as well, so it's been like seeing two for one. Um, yeah. But um, they do make a huge difference. But um, when I was talking to a friend of mine about, um, doing this interview, they, one, of the, one of them suggested a question to me, um, saying, uh, you know, for for people who haven't got a spiritual director or or don't have a supportive spouse but have left the church, um, what would what would you want to say to them? What advice? What wisdom would you want to pass on to them? Well, oh man, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, part of me just now is um, thinking of that Rilke poem, Into Your Heart, Out Into Your Heart is Onto a Vast Plain, and There the Immense Loneliness Begins. So I I guess the first thing I would say is um, there is often an immense loneliness because it's not just the loss of um, not feeling connected to a partner or not feeling connected to a community, but it's like the, the, your whole worldview has stopped working. 
Um, that's at least that's how it felt to me. Um, and what does that feel like? That feels like a loneliness. So I guess I would say it's part of the spiritual story. It's it's maybe it's the dark night of the soul that Saint John of the Cross talks about, or the mystics talk about. In other words, there doesn't seem to be another way around it. If it's all victory, happiness, you know, I doubted for five minutes, but then I, you know, recovered. It's, it hasn't gone very deep yet. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, that's not advice. That's just saying, I know what you're talking about. I know the immense loneliness, but I also know that it's not unusual. Um, and then out there in the, or maybe down there in the belly of the whale is where in the darkness of the belly of the whale is where the seeds of transformation, um, are planted Mm. and that's where the hard work is. And, and I also found, at least for me, it does seem to be the case that oftentimes a guide, an unusual guide could be anything, could be a spiritual director or a friend or a book or a some kind of guide appears to say, you're not insane. (laughs) Um, you're not crazy. You're a little lonely. Yes, but it's not, um, you're also exactly in the right place. Um, there's a, there's a, a Lakota story. I won't tell you the whole thing, but, um, Native American story where a mouse leaves the village. It's super long. So just, we'll just go for like 3%. A mouse leaves the village because he hears a roaring in the ears and everyone in the community tells him the roaring in the ears is he's insane. He should just get back to work. But as soon as he leaves the village, a raccoon appears and says, you're not crazy. There is a roaring in the ears and I'll take you to where this roaring is. And that's what I'm talking about. Like a guide, a spiritual director, a voice, for me, I found it sometimes in books. Like I started reading Thomas Merton. I was like, oh my word. His longing for truth and for God and his raw honesty just rung my bell for a while. And I was like, here's a voice that makes me feel for a moment a little less alone. Or I'm lonely with him. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. lonely together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just the advice is to keep going. Uh, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and um, and and perhaps the whole the whole world, um, the the natural world, for me, being outside, being in nature, um, laying under the sky, laying under the empty branches, um, is a broadens the sense of sort of existential loneliness and puts me in a context. Okay, I'm a creature on this earth as well. Um, my whole, the whole earth is a community for me as well. Even if my church says, get out of here cause we're afraid. Um, I'm also, I've had moments of just feeling welcomed by some sort of larger, um, web that we're caught up into. So I don't know. I mean, you asked me tough things. That's a very <laughs> good question. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, what do you, what do you see? as the future for um, the church in inverted, inverted commas. What, where, where do you see that going? What do you see happening? I have no idea. That's what I have no idea. Um, I Part of me senses more and more people are going to leave the confines of doctrinal um, affiliation. 
meaning I am part of this church and because they believe A, B, and C, meaning we're in the right and other people who believe EFG are in the wrong, I think that my hope is that, I guess it's a hope, um, that more and more people would leave the confines of such a narrow um, fear-based form of belonging. Um, so, yeah, I have a sense that more and more people are, are going to leave the church. I also have a sense that we're in a time period of really a lot of searching and wandering, which means um, there are going to be a lot of mistakes. A lot of people are on this kind of like, um, I'm just going to piecemeal my own religious worldview together. And I think that that's okay. Um, but it starts to feel kind of crazy, like like picking and choosing, like like a Netflix screen. And uh, today I like this, yeah. and tomorrow I like something different. I just happen to think that's part of the age we're in. I, I don't know to what it's going to evolve, but I have a sense that anything that is pointing toward a more integral view of the world. So what are we? We're we're full-bodied creatures, body, soul, spirit. More than one religion and religious spirituality points to uh, the truth. Seeing big patterns. Um, and I think the, that spiritual communities are, are going to change. I, I recently, I mean, as of this week, took another job at a place that calls itself um, an inclusive spiritual community. They have no doctrine. Um, they have values, and I'll be doing some teaching for them on Sundays. But this is a community that, you know, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s, they dropped their church name. They took the cross down. They sold their building. They meet in a community center. And these are not like young millennials. These are people in their 60s, 70s, 80s mostly. Um, and mm -hmm. I, so I, I don't know. Part of me says, okay, maybe, maybe more and more places are— um, uh, will lose the specifically Christian title. But I don't know. It's just a guess of mine. Um, but I do know that we're in an age of a lot of upheaval. Yes. And um, I think anyone who predicts the nature of what this upheaval and evolution is going to look like, mm. probably we ought to say, well, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, good. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with you. Um, and that actually takes me on to one of the last things I want to ask, which is about um, something I've talked about with a lot of people, which is the difference between what we believe and how we believe it. Mm -hmm. Because I've noticed when uh, the example, I think the example I used was when Donald Trump got elected, um, that um, there are a lot of people who were, who would call themselves liberal, progressive, you know, Christians, whatever, um, were acting like conservatives in that it was we're right we believe the right thing we've got the moral high ground you're wrong and anyone who doesn't believe what we believe is brushed under this one label of who they are and yep. we're not going to listen to their story you know and they had did it with the best of intentions but what i got out of that was that we need to hear each other's stories even the ones we disagree with completely um, and that that's what loving your enemy is and that's actually the better way to believe because it means you're holding your beliefs 
with open hands. I talked to a guy yesterday who's got a brother who's a complete atheist and a guy who's a Calvinist, a brother who's a Calvinist. And he's right in the middle of them. And mm. they believe completely different things, but they, but they get on really well because they're all open to learning from each other. They have, yeah. they have open hands in terms of how they believe. So what do you, what do you think about kind of in terms of like how important it is to how we believe as opposed to just what we believe? Hmm. Yeah. Again, this is kind of a philosophical question that um, might be a little bit out of my league. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> epistemology in a way how we how we come to know anything at all. Um, but the how certainly how we hold something certainly seems to be in some ways more important than what we say we hold like like you're saying what we claim to believe and how we hold that belief uh, that's very revealing and you're absolutely right that's so perceptive that the right and the left actually are operating on the same level of consciousness which is us versus them although the liberal progressives have said out of their mouth, we're above us versus them. We've included all people except the ones we don't want to include. It's like uh, like Bob Dylan has that line. He says, um, uh, um, um, we don't hate anything at all except hatred, which is a, f- a funny way of saying that. Um, oh, no, we don't hate, but if someone hates, we hate them. <laughs> Uh, which is the same level of consciousness. Of course, I don't know what Bob Dylan really meant by that. That's just the way I'm taking it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but that's that's the consciousness. Um, I mean, Ken Wilber is probably the leading expert on <laughs> on shifts and changes in consciousness. Um, and he's got a great new book called uh, Trump in the or Post-Truth World or something like that. Trump in the post-truth world. But anyway, he lays a lot of blame at the feet of liberals, um, be, partly in what you're describing, that the same level of consciousness is meeting on the right and the left, and it's about us versus them. Um, and in the progressive world, we, we sort of said out of our mouths that all values are equal. You can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and everybody's truth is flat and neutral. Well, that doesn't work. Um, that doesn't work when suddenly you're confronted with a truth that hurts you or that you don't like. Then the first thing you do is want to squash it, which means um, you really are uh, stuck on the same plane. So, I mean, that's why Einstein's saying no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it uh, really rings true. So uh, I don't know what you're saying about listening, I think is vitally important. And part of the one good thing from liberal progressive people is they, at least on the surface, say we like to listen to other people. We value other people's stories. Um, So I think that's also important. But one of the things that I've been having to do a lot of thinking about this because the election was just such a crazy whirlwind um, and caused me to do a lot of soul searching. But I think one of the things that's happening is that we're seeing in other people bits and pieces of our own shadow, Mm. which is why which is why liberal progressives will go out onto the streets and punch 
a conservative, you know, the opposite a person in their minds punch them in the face. Now, why would they go out and act violently? Well, my guess is that they're something of their own shadow is being mirrored back to them that they don't want to look at. And Jung says the way to, one way to begin to discover the shadow is when you say, there's no way I'm like so-and-so, then you're getting close. So if I'm like, there's no way I'm like a backwoods, white, rebel flag waving American, there's not, I, one thing I know is that none of that is in me, then you better believe part of that capacity is in me and I just don't want to look at it. And same goes with the other way. When conservatives say, I have to expel and push away and reject um, that gay person, that black person, that, mm. and there's no way that that is in me means actually they're probably getting close to something that they don't want to look at, which, which mm. so part of the dialogue maybe that we're describing is to begin to say, no, actually, I see bits and pieces of things that are unsavory in my own self. Mm. And that level of honesty, then the walls can start to come down. And then real empathy begins to, you know, rise up like a tide. Um, we know, when I begin to see, actually, I'll give you an example. Like, I grew up in the South, in Virginia. I grew up 45 minutes from Charlottesville in a town called Lynchburg. Um, I grew up around rebel flags and this kind of stuff. Mm. Um but if I can begin to say, actually, the rural white farmer who has felt left out, which is true, who suffered immensely in the 1980s, um, in the farm crisis, who has felt like, what does, what does liberal Hollywood have to do with their farm? You know, well, that's a kind of suffering. Once I begin to say, actually, I do see bits and pieces of this person's feeling and felt experience in myself, and I felt that way too. Um, and even some of the anger that they might feel, um, then then I can meet them on the level of empathy. Even if I say, "Well, um, yes, you have. It's okay to feel angry," um, but then we can have a real discussion on the way in which that anger is acted out. Is it directed at um, the enemy? Um, and, and in that sense, pushed away or what, what needs to be owned back. Anyway, these are just, um, I think you're on a very curious and powerful sort of trail to follow um, that I'm, I'm curious about as well. But, um, and, but back to your, what you asked simply, how we hold something seems to matter even more than what we say we believe. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Thank yeah. you. And so... Yeah, just finally, what's your what's your hope for the book for um, Bitten by a Camel? What, what's 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 your hope for it? Your biggest hope for it? <laughs> you know, um, my initial hope was to try to write something honestly, right. as best I can, um, and I felt like I wrote about the best book that I could during the weird year that I wrote it, which was a year when I was quit my job and my dad died and it was a lot of upheaval. I tried to write as honest a book as I can. My hope is that people um, will hear in the metaphors and in the stories something of their own experience and feel a little less alone. And um, 
my other hope is like some of the most unhelpful things that evangelical Christianity has promoted out in the world around original sin, around beliefs about certain beliefs about the Bible, around end times, around uh, whatever. The, those are the, some of the chapters I go after that that um, in a generative and constructive way, I hope that dismantling can lead to some more um, life-giving and generative um, ideas around spirituality and God. So those are some of my hopes. And selfishly, I have a really small publisher, so my hope is I sell enough to write another book. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like uh, some selfish hopes on my on my end. Great. Awesome. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And, uh, yeah, I hope... Um, People will order the book in England and uh, and and hear something of their own experience in there. So thanks. Yeah, well, you can get that on on Amazon and, and everything like that. Yeah. Another yep. Book. Amazon is the best uh, place for it. So. Right. Awesome. Um, well, thanks for thanks for coming on, and uh, that's it for this week, everyone. Take care, um, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>